this fact that if God exists, what then? If God exists, then, then everything about your life should reflect that fact. I think he was a sex addict. Hell is a sort of high-class nightclub, entry to which is reserved for Catholics only. Sarah's experience is a true death of self. When she gives up Bendrick, she's giving up her human happiness and sort of learning to live as someone who has died with Christ and um, can experience a true joy and happiness in the resurrection, but it doesn't feel that way for a while. Yeah, you know, right. You're really, truly living as a dead person. Hello, and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. Particular Good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. We're coming to you from St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York. We also have campuses in Buffalo, New York, Syracuse, and Albany. And we're offering courses that are available nationwide. All of our courses are on Zoom and can be taken by anyone anywhere. My name is Charles Hughes Huff. I'm the Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Bernard's. I'm here today with Heather Hughes Huff, who is married to me and I'm married to her. That's why we have the same name. And Heather is going to be talking with us today about Catholic literary imagination. Graham Greene and the End of the Affair. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Heather will be leading a discussion of the End of the Affair, Graham Greene's novel, on Thursday, October 29, 7.30 p.m. If you're interested in coming to that live discussion of the book, where you could meet Heather and other folks from St. Bernard's, talk about the End of the Affair, and ask any questions you might have, um, about the school or about the book. It's next Thursday at 7.30 p.m. You can register for it at stbernards.edu. It's entirely free, and uh, it would be fun to see you there. So Heather is teaching a class next semester called the Catholic Literary Imagination for St. Bernard's and took her BA and MA in English Literature from Baylor University, where she wrote on Graham Greene for a thesis and she'll be talking with us today. I already said that. <laughs> I think a couple times. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to pause with the scripted uh, sound and just keep going for <laughs> I it. I think that's better. Uh, so, Heather, um, we've got uh, Graham Greene and The End of the Affair, a novel and within a tradition. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by Catholic literary imagination, and particularly as we find it in the 20th century? Sure. That's, yeah, that's the focus of the course that I'm teaching. It's uh, specifically about the 20th century um, and mostly English and American writers. Um, the thing that interests me about 20th century Catholic novelists in particular is their response to um, sort of a world gone mad a little bit. The 20th century is one defined by world war um, and especially British writers are responding to um, the world of their childhood being completely annihilated. Um, like Brideshead Revisited is a, a big one that sort of um, remembers days gone by that will never be the same again. Um, yeah. And then, in, so that's just like the cultural backdrop. And then within sort of those bounds, um, responding with a Catholic worldview and imagination, a sort of um, response to how how the world is changing with an eye towards the eternal um, in the ways they understand it. So this would be a type of post-apocalyptic literature in a way? <laughs> <laughs> that might be a stretch, but sure. Uh, well, and actually, uh, writers like Walker Percy straight up has a post-apocalyptic novel, um, one that feels a little too real reading it now in 2020, honestly. Um, so, sure. What's, what's, the, what's this? This isn't the moviegoers. No, no. Um, it is uh, Love Among the Ruins, Love in the Ruins. Um, I conflate those titles all the time. I should look it up. Love in the Ruins, I think. Um, yeah, just uh, it's like America divided left and right and 
yeah, a little too real. Um, <laughs> so this is something that's going on not only in Britain, but in America as well? Yeah, uh, obviously drawing on different um, cultural touchstones, like the Southern Gothic um, Catholic writers engage with the, the grotesque like Flannery O'Connor um, and deal with different themes like, you know, <laughs> American ones. American, <laughs> Race, American version. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, like Southern religion, um, like crazy prophets in the wilderness kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, that's more Flannery O'Connor than Walker Percy, but um, yeah, just working with different Different materials. cultural things that are going on. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. That's great. Thank you. So, uh, so where does Graham Greene fit into this? Who is, who is he? Uh, why is he part of this group of Catholic writers in the 20th century? Uh, does he, is he friends with them? Is uh, he hanging out with Tolkien? What's going on here? <laughs> um, Graham Greene is, is smack in the middle of all of it. Uh, he was born in 1904 and um, went to Oxford, knew Waugh and, and others at Oxford. Um, was sort of not in their clique necessarily um, growing up. I, Waugh described him as sort of like an aloof, like looking down on all of their revelry and uh, the fun that he portrays really well in Brideshead Revisited. Um, he was more like a, he, uh, he's d a depressed kid, yeah. you know. Um, he grew up, uh, his father was a uh, headmaster at the school that he went to. So this is like looms large and biographies of him. Like he, he was a spy from the beginning. He had torn loyalties between, you know, the, the institution and the, the rebels within. Um, I'm sure his father was a real sweet guy who helped him out with all this stuff for a while. <laughs> Not my impression. <laughs> Actually, he, um, he, there's a story in his biography about him playing Russian roulette with his brother's gun when he was an adolescent. Wow. He, yeah, um, he was, uh, he went and got therapy when he was a teenager. That's just like not something that really happened uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, sure. So he was a troubled guy for sure. Um, he, you know, drank and did drugs and things um, in ways that emerged over time. Um, but yeah, so as far as like his context in 20th century Catholic literature, um, I think he is a big name because he's so known for other things as well. Um, he wrote four major Catholic novels uh, and otherwise was a really productive um, sort of mystery, spy, adventure kind of a writer. And initially, he divided up his work between books he called entertainments, um, more like Penny Dreadful type stuff. That's not quite it. Um, but more Pulp Fiction. Yes, yeah. more along those lines. Yeah. Um, he, he's a very cinematic writer. People say that a lot, where it's like uh, the narrator is like a camera's lens, you know, um, and you're going through uh, stories in a very, like, cinematic way, uh, the way things are revealed, the way the, the narrative moves forward. Um, so he's got this noir element uh, that also meant he was really good at writing screenplays. And loads of his books or movies like going down the list like ha more than half um were eventually made into films and sometimes several films like the end of the affair there are two movies made out of that um so it's fun to watch and make comparisons did he also write direct screenplays himself or yeah. were they all based on his novels no he um he wrote sc direct screenplays as well like his very his, the cinematic tilt is was intentional and him yeah Third Man is by him, right? Did he write that? Yeah. That, yeah. That's like a spy noir war film, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's um, fantastic. Yeah. All of the titles are great. Like The Man Within was his first novel. It's, it's pretty good. The Man Within is, yeah. <laughs> so he got started. How did, he, how, how did he get started as a writer? Was he doing these entertainments? Yeah. Um, yep. Man Within, obviously, sounds very noiry. Um, so he graduated from Oxford in history, but then started working as a journalist um, and was working on novels like in the background. Eventually, Man Within was a big hit. 
Um, so it was he was able to do a little bit less journalism and editing and a little more of novel writing. So when he's at Oxford with Waugh and Co., is this part of like Oxford Catholicism? Is he friends with them because they're all Catholics, or how is that working for him? No, not at all. They're friends because you know they're upper crust <laughs> Brits uh, at Oxford, um, but he didn't convert to Catholicism until. Um, around 1927 when he married his wife, Vivian Darrell Browning. And they met because she wrote the paper he was working on at, working at, on the, at the time, Nottingham Journal, to correct some point of Catholic teaching that he had referenced. Oh, wow. Yeah, I would think it's, it's interesting how he meets the women in his life. Um, but he became interested in the faith because of her, basically, and converted around the same time that um, they got married. So his interest in Catholic theology and the church was born out of that, and then um, his fiction began to incorporate those themes um, in four particular novels that he's very well known for. It's the four Catholic novels. It's um, Brighton Rock, The Power and the Glory, Heart of the Matter, and The End of the Affair. Um, and then after those four books, which deal very explicitly with Catholic faith, uh, the latter three more than Brighton Rock does, actually, but... Um, after that, he says that uh, Catholic teaching, like Catholicism, became more of a pattern in the carpet of his uh, fiction rather than sort of the main point. That makes sense. And are these, I'm curious, are these four novels centered, written during the war, centered around the war? Is it merely happenstance that he converted or, and then started writing these Catholic novels and then got a little bored with it? Or was this a part of his processing the cri crisis of his experience with the war? I think, so, okay, so Brighton Rock is 38. Power and the Glory is 1940, which was super um, affected, like the impact of his book was affected, ah, excuse me, the impact of his book um, was very affected by the war because no one was like reading new novels you know uh, it yeah. wasn't um it didn't have uh as big of a response as i think it would have if it were published at a different time um heart of the matter was 1948 and end of the affair was 51 so it's all sort of around the war yeah um but graham green's perspective on the world was um definitely dark before <laughs> the war yeah. started uh, the word people use is Greenland, it, one word with the E, um, to describe the, the sort of uh, qualities of the world of his fiction, which is very seedy and dark, where like good men are just bad and nothing works, like governments are failures and um, like things fall apart. So Cormac McCarthy or in Britain <laughs> or is this <laughs> maybe not the road level, but I think of him as like a British um, Hemingway. Ah. You know, he uh, a little around the war and after he traveled extremely extensively. Um, he went to war torn countries constantly. He um, the power and the glory is based on his time in uh, Tabasco, Mexico. Um, when the uh, persecution of the Catholic Church was huge. Um, why was that? Why was the Catholic Church being persecuted in Tabasco, Mexico? Um, there was an anti-clerical governor, Tomas Garrido Canabal, mm. and he had succeeded in closing all of the churches. Like the things that you read in The Power and the Glory, yeah. it's obviously fiction, but it's based on uh, true facts of people's experiences and things that he saw when he went there yeah um he described it as the fiercest persecution of religion anywhere since the reign of elizabeth wow yeah so uh, he was he was used to seeing um chaos for sure um and a lot of his novels um are based in these far-flung flung places um and reflect a lot of his experience like heart of the matter is based in sierra leone he was in West Africa um, during World War II and got a lot of the information in that book from his own experiences. Um, Comedians is based in Haiti. Burnt Out Case is based in Congo. Like, he's got a ton of... Uh, so he's all over the place, yeah. Yeah. Is he 
what are these novels like when he's writing from these places that are uh, as a, a British person in the sort of dwindling times of the British Empire? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they are they sort of in among the people? Are they it's colonialist expressions? What how how do they come across? It's definitely a combination. There's a lot of you know like white ladies fanning themselves in the jungle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but um, The Power and the Glory, I think that's definitely my personal favorite book of his, um, and I think it's one of his best, and that's the experience of a Mexican priest, and it's not through the eyes of um, any like white observers. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Excellent. So uh, what, um, what, what is the end of the affair fall in all? So, The End of the Affair is his final uh, Catholic novel before he sort of turns his attention elsewhere, and it's deeply um, integrated with his own biography uh, in a really interesting way. So I guess we'll just launch into that. Yes. Uh, Yes, that'd be great. I want to hear more about how this integrates his biography and his love life and so on, which I I hope I didn't cut you off on on the biography part. You mentioned when uh, you were talking about the boarding school that he is, he was a spy from the beginning. Where else was he a spy? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, in Sierra Leone, when he was um, in the war in Africa, he worked for MI6. Ah. Um, and then after that, um, he came back and worked for MI6 in the London office. What did he do for MI6? He was just out there spying? He was out there spying. Uh-huh. And then when he was back in the office, he was running um, uh, agents. That's the word. <laughs> I'm not, you know, <laughs> personally involved. Running agents uh, in Lisbon from the Portuguese desk. Ah. Um, of MI6 in London. So wow. he was both like out there in the field in Africa and then had a desk job at MI6. So this is very fascinating where you have these Catholic writers of the 20th century, British guys who are responding to the war, but they're also very involved in the war, right? Yes. So he's a spy. What was Wa's occupation during World War II? Do you know? I should know. I know a lot about Sword of Honor. Yeah. <laughs> Sword of he, Honor has this amazing portrayal of, of the battle in Greece, which is one of the best war portray- battle portrayals uh, that that's, was ever written. Right? Yeah, that's what they say. The evacuation of Crete in the Sword of Honor is like the best fictional portrayal of that event that you can find. And he was there for it, right? Yes, yeah. he was. I think it's a... I, I might be totally conflating his fiction with his biography there, but I think he, um, like Guy in Sort of Honor, uh, sort of signed up thinking uh, this is true good against evil in the world and was very disappointed by the bureaucracy of the British Army and the ways that um, their values were compromised, especially towards the end, making deals, trying to get out. Yeah. That sort of thing. Right. Okay. Very good. So he was a spy and uh, was deeply involved in the war. He was writing novels through the war. He married Vivian Darrell Browning in 1927. Uh, his Catholic faith was very much a part of his marriage and his love for his wife um, as a sort of uh, entryway to his love for God. Mm-hmm. But I think he was a sex addict. He slept with prostitutes throughout his engagement. He's just like a guy who cheats. Um, and he had a long-term mistress by the time the war started, um, and he sent his family away to Oxford to be safe from the Blitz, and he stayed in London for, for parts of it. I'm not sure when he was in Africa and when he was, but he was definitely in London during the Blitz with this woman, um, Dorothy, Dorothy Glover, um, and it's like, his story with his wife is just very sad. Um, she was Catholic. She wasn't going to get a divorce, but he wouldn't live with her. Mm-hmm. Um, she became, sorry, this is totally peripheral, but I just find it fascinating. Yeah. She became obsessed with dollhouses. Dollhouses. She was living alone with her kids without her husband. 
became obsessed with dollhouses and like collected them and knew everything about dollhouses. Wow, that seems like a cope. It is. It's <laughs> a, a, you know, a helpful fixation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So she, what was her, like, what was her life besides dollhouses? Did, did she continue with her letters to editors and um, did she? We don't know much, or do we have letters between them? Well, I've seen letters from their early relationship, but I think she just lived in a sort of tortured existence where um, I I haven't read much about what things were like for her. Sure. Um, but there are these moments in some of his letters and um, journals and things where it's like, he was traveling um, through the place where his wife was staying at their home, and he had either Dorothy or Catherine Walston, who the end of the affair is very much based on, which I'll get to in a second, with him. And they like came to stay where his wife was, hmm. and she's causing scenes or whatever from his perspective, and it's just awful. So it's, he's abusive. He's not a great guy. Yeah. No. Um, which I think it's important to remember. Um, but so that's their background is like this, this, this thing where they're not, she's not going to divorce him. They're going to be peripherally in each other's lives, but it's just horrible. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so the end of the affair is very involved with Green's own biography. Um, he dedicated the book to a woman named Catherine Walston, um, which is kind of outrageous because Catherine Walston is basically his Sarah, Sarah Miles in The End of the Affair. Yeah. Um, she was a married woman, an American wife of a British politician named Harry Walston. Mm-hmm. She's like very close to Henry. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fair enough. Sarah Miles' husband yes. in The End of the Affair. Um, so it's a little bit insane that he just did that. And know uh, with the classic, like, you know, this is fictional. If any relation to the facts is inconsequential or whatever. Um, so they met uh, because Catherine Walston wrote <laughs> to him or wrote to his wife, I think, actually, Vivian, um, and asked that he would sponsor her when she converted to become a Roman Catholic. Um, because she had read his fiction and really liked it. Um, so he's technically her sponsor. I, I don't know if he's her godfather, too, depending on if she got baptized, I guess. Wow. They had an extremely intense relationship. Um, there are a bunch of letters that he wrote to her, um, sort of, again, integrating his Catholic faith with this adulterous relationship, saying things like, you know, I almost fell asleep at Mass. It's, like, so much more powerful to... Um, be sitting next to you knowing like the tension there um, and things like um, I'm a better Catholic when I'm with you um, despite the fact that they're both married to other people right um, so she was uh, a woman who was you know became converted to Roman Catholicism was sort of trying to be a, a practicing Catholic but was embroiled in this affair um, which eventually petered out um, so a lot of the book is a reflection of his feelings towards Catherine Walston um, and her choice to turn towards God. Um, that love triangle that happens um, in the book, I think, is, is very alive for him, which comes across and um, that's very moving yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. Good. So the love triangle you're describing is not between uh, Sarah and... Henry, her husband, and the narrator of, what's his name? Bendrix. Ben, Bendrix, right. Morris. Uh, Morris Bendrix. Um, but it's in fact between Sarah and God and Morris Bendrix, with Henry as sort of a sad witness. Yes. And um, Bendrix loses out. In the I, end. I, this is a spoiler for our listeners. <laughs> yes, if you haven't read the novel hit pause and go read it and come back. Yeah, that's right. But so he loses out and this is what happened with uh, Graham as well in this relationship, I take it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's a, it's really interesting. So 
this quality of um, sort of knowing the cost of faith um, that's put in romantic terms in the end of the affair is something that I think is alive in all of his Catholic novels. Yeah. Um, where it's uh, something that Green experienced himself as well um, in the midst of his conversion and was sort of decreasingly willing to engage with as his life went on. Um, this fact that if God exists, what then? If God exists, then, then everything about your life should reflect that fact, um, and he can demand anything from you. Right. Um, and you don't have the power to refuse it or to change it. If God exists, then you are created by him. Um, so that, that tension and that sort of uh, competition put, again, in romantic words, uh, terms in the end of the affair, but going a little bit deeper than that, um, I think is what makes his no Catholic novels so alive and particularly good um, in relation to the rest of his fiction. I think The Power and the Glory is sort of the best example of this, and then The End of the Affair, I think, is the most personal. Hmm. So, w say more about this. For him, uh, Catholicism in the face or in the teeth of this World War II grim reality was not, and his encounter with God himself, was not about creating a counter-narrative that was brighter or more um, heroic in some way, uh, but was about loss. Yeah, I, I would say that's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, it's definitely not a counter-vision of like happy Acadia while the world burns or whatever. Yeah, sure. um, in fact, I, I have, I'm glad I brought this little uh, handout that I have that has a quote from George Orwell that says, Green appears to share the idea, which has been floating around ever since Baudelaire, that there is something rather distingué about in being damned. <laughs> Hell is a sort of high-class nightclub, entry to which is reserved for Catholics only. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So it's a description of Greenland as this sort of uh, seedy, sin-obsessed uh, world. Um, he was definitely, Green was definitely critiqued by Catholics at his time who saw his fiction as glamorizing sin, as sort of making it sexy, um, and not really getting to the point of holiness or, or what it's all about. I was sort of enjoying the fact of the guilt. Is that part of it? Absolutely. Reveling in it. And that's things like, I think, I think that that's true to an extent. Mm -hmm. I think that his, his Catholic novels um, definitely transcend being only that, but there is an element of it. Um, especially heart of the matter, I don't like as much as the power and the glory for sort of that reason where it's like you're setting up these false dilemmas uh, for characters that need to kill themselves to save the day. And it's yeah. like, no, he doesn't. Yeah. Scobie is an idiot. Um, sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Maybe cut that. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, that it can be a limitation um, in the sort of freedom uh, and scope of his fiction. Um, but I, I do think that he gets at something very real uh, that was also experienced by him, that sort of like draw towards sin, um, this knowledge that there's, there's no hope in it, yeah. um, but still sort of getting entangled. Still getting entangled, being drawn towards sin, being aware, self-conscious of it, and uh, sort of enjoying the whole process in a way. Um, I, at least I know that it's sin, or is it more like it's worse off because I know that it's sin? Kind of a combo. Yeah. Sort of enjoying that, too, like reveling in the sordidness. So w how does this play into something true and real uh, that moved you about the end of the affair? And what is it that is the real dilemma that he sets up. Like what's, the, what's the leap? Uh, I think it's the real dilemma is that um, this sort of affected choice that Sarah um, is required to make because in the novel she uh, is deeply in love with her uh, lover, Bendrix. Um, she has a husband, but she loves Bendrix. 
and then suddenly they're in the blitz and he is killed presumably um by an attack she sees him dead goes back to their room where they had spent the night together and prays to god sort of suddenly that if he let Bendrix live, she would give him up forever. Um, so this is very contrived a bit, but it is sort of a blueprint for what life actually is if God exists. It's a constant question in the end of the fair. If I could hate God, what would that mean? That would mean God exists, which would mean what? I'm not in control of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Green, um, his sort of relationship with this question, if God exists, then what, is something that I relate very deeply to. Um, In his um, biography, A Sort of Life, he talks about his conversion, and he um, tells a story of this priest who he knew at the time named Father Trollope. Um, He had previously been an actor. He's a very, like... um, charismatic guy um, who had, you know, been an actor, enjoyed the pleasures of life, whatever, and his relationship with God had led him to give up increasingly all of these things. It's like the taking away of consolation that you're doing willingly, where, like, he no longer was an actor. He didn't, like, drink as much as he used to. He gave up smoking and all those things. And this story for him, I have a quote from the um, biography. He says, it was some weeks before he had told me a story. Father Trollope, the one I just told. Um, And it came like a warning hand placed on my shoulder. See the danger of going too far. That was the menace his story contained. Be very careful. Keep well within your depth. There are dangerous currents out at sea which could sweep you anywhere. Father Trollope had been swept a very long way out, but the turbulent sea had not finished with him yet. Which direction is the current? Is this toward God? Towards God. Wow. But it's a losing of your own will and your own ability to control or create your own life. Like Father Trollope, you know, he liked acting. <laughs> like, what's so bad with that? I think that's the Green's tension um, is one that we can definitely all relate to where uh, Sarah has this thing that it's beautiful. Her relationship with Bendrix is like, I mean, you definitely get the downsides of it, but it's uh, a passion, a true love, a true human love. Um, and it's an extreme circumstance to to throw it all away for the sake of the one that you love. Um, but we're sort of called to do that in all things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've had this conversation many times where it's like uh, the sins that, that are most visible um, are the ones that people focus on, like, you know, sex or, or uh, big things like that, um, and that's what people talk about, but it's those, those same re- renunciations that we're called to make um, apply to all sorts of things in our lives that we're, we don't always want to give up. Right, and there's a, a question here of, rather than evaluating uh, what's the minimal right or wrong um, that one could do and still sort of be pointed toward virtue and divine happiness. It's a seems to me like more of a leap all the way in, like um, where you're not. Cigarettes aren't a, a an affair that you have to give up <laughs> right. for poor Father Trollope, uh, and it's really not about every person giving up cigarettes either. So you're not talking about some sort of moral theology. We're talking about union with God coming before your own personal happiness. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I think Green's books are just this great um, example or uh, like workbook on the vices Mm. where it's like you can see, um, you know, like the carnal sins are the ones that are actually the least important as far as like twisting your whole self. The carnal? The carnal is? sins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So like gluttony and lust 
And that's like you see in The Power and the Glory, there's this priest who is a drunk. Um, He has an illegitimate child. It's no good. But those aren't the things that like change his direction. You Mm -hmm. know, they're a problem, but he's he's heroically um, going where God calls him despite those things Mm -hmm. compared to the end of the affair where Bendrix, his vices are, um, you know, envy and maybe Akedia or Acedia. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and those things are like, they're a turn at the center. You know, they're like, he's going to end up far away from where he should be aiming um, because of how close they are sort of to his love for Sarah, um, which should be like the best thing. Right. But it's sort of the envy pulls him from even being able to love Sarah. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't seem to truly love her at any point in the novel. No, it's very vicious the way that he talks about her and controlling her. And there's, um, it's like this sort of dual vision of both uh, love, natural love leading to divine love, and especially more for Sarah than for Bendrix, um, where learning to love him and learning to give herself up for him um, is what prepares her to make this ultimate sacrifice and to turn towards sort of the author of all affection. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet for him, same thing. It's like, because it's this closest thing to a real good, it's the most twisted because of it. Am I like totally double speaking? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No. Both can be true a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's fair. And while he's the narrator of this novel, mm-hmm. and she does see, seem to sort of, in a way, the narrator doesn't quite realize at many points in the novel, she does make sacrifices for him and keep him uh, pacified, as women do for men a lot. <laughs> um, I feel like her turn toward god and her understanding of him that we get in her journal um, mm-hmm. and her understanding of bendrix that, that goes beyond what bendrix understands about himself still presents to us a character who has her own sort of story going on right that is uh not fully just she's not her sacrifice for him and then her sacrifice to God. Or she's sacrificing him for God as much as she's sacrificing uh, herself in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's about her and her own personal story, too, even though um, it's also encountered by this unreliable narrator and uh, goes beyond her life because she dies in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does work something out in him, too, in a loving way. But it still seems like she has her own sort of autonomy going on. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, her, um, the section in the novel that's just her diary that you get to read for a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's my favorite part of the book. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. All right. So we've got an abusive guy who writes about um, people who are making leaps into self-renunciation and in order to have union with God and not necessarily to have happiness. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, and how is this received? In a, and we know, for instance, what comes to my mind as someone more recently aware of 20th century Catholic literature is the first person that comes to mind is Tolkien, right? Where, and he's not what you're talking about at all with these other figures were. But Tolkien's a World War II era a Catholic writer who is creating uh, the f- one of the very first instances of fantasy literature where there's good and evil and the good is humble and part of Mary Britain in a certain way <laughs> and does triumph over the evil uh, red eye of Sauron. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's creating a sort of narrative that has been wildly embraced by Catholics, but also by everybody um, 
well, I shouldn't say everybody, but by many, many people yeah. um, and by films and, and so on. So we know Tolkien. But how does green uh, fit into Catholic consciousness? Or who do Catholics embrace green like they do Tolkien? Or do, do other people? How, how does, what's his place in the Catholic literary imagination? I think it's, uh, he's an interesting case um, because I think everybody wants to claim him. He uh, was a huge figure in 20th century literature period. Um, he was shortlisted for a Nobel Prize. Uh, the, those, um, all that stuff is released 50 years after the prize is announced, and he was one of the top three mm -hmm. um, for literature. So he's a big figure, um, and I think a lot of people want to sort of hold him up as a Catholic writer in a way that I think is a little complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I think he, when he was writing, there were like, uh, violent responses on both sides where it's like, he's making converts, like this is wonderful, look at how beautiful all of this Catholic stuff is. And then on the other side, it was like, he's glamorizing sin, um, he should be banished or whatever. Sure. Um, but I, I think it's somewhere in between, you know? I, um, his conversion was genuine. The parts of the faith that he expresses in some of his books are very real and relatable um, and really sort of moving. Uh, but I also think that his vision of the faith was ultimately limited and sort of left behind. Um, I have another quote from one of his biographies. It's yeah, like, sure, yeah. go for it. So um, he was talking about his first confession that he gave it during his conversion. Um, this is in A Sort of Life, his autobiography. And he says... He wrote a... Wait, I just want to pause on this. Mm -hmm. He wrote a autobiography yeah. called A Sorted Life? Sort of. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. It's like, that's a little on the nose there's, for Greenland yeah, as you're describing <laughs> it. Okay. A sort of life. Okay, okay. This is not the Monty Python version. <laughs> okay, <or whatever>. yeah, okay. <laughs> Although that brings up another story of a, a paper at the time um, having a contest of people to sort of satirize Green's fiction, and he submitted to the contest, and he won second place. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like putting on that Greenland uh, seediness. I love so it. so funny. That's, that's amazing. Anyway, the quote from A Sort of Life um, <laughs> begins, Later we may become hardened to the formulas of confession and skeptical about ourselves. We may only half intend to keep the promises we make until continual failure or the cir circumstance of our private life finally make it impossible to make any promises at all. And many of us abandon confession and communion to join the foreign legion of the church and fight for a city of which we are no longer full citizens. But in the first confession, a convert really believes in his own promises. I carried mine down with me like heavy stones into an empty corner of the cathedral. I think that's a really representative of his sort of path where um, when he was talking to Father Trollope and had first encountered a true faith in what if God exists, um, he was open to the consequences of that choice. And then later, um, he increasingly chose to try to escape those consequences. Yeah. Um, well, how did his life turn out? He, um, so after Catherine Walston, I think that was a big turning point where, um, where he says, uh, circumstances of our private life finally make it impossible to make any promises at all that's yeah. Catherine walston I like see. he yeah. wasn't going to leave her um he uh has a story of going to a confessor who was like dude like you have to never see her again and you have to like stop it and truly confess to say that like you're not going to and then that's it and he was like I'm sorry, I have to go find another confessor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he was like, I'm willing to say I'll try. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, you know, stopped trying, basically. Yeah. Um, and as time went on, like I said before, uh, 
he thought of Catholicism as the pattern in the carpet of his fiction. It yeah. wasn't um, the focus that he had. It sort of gave a little bit of flair. Um, and he described himself as an agnostic Catholic or a Catholic agnostic. Ah. So he turned his attention more to um, political strife, and his novels are about um, lots of foreign governments and uh, world events and things like that. Okay, good. And he lived a ripe old age and thought of new children? And he had two kids with Vivian. Um, they were born in 33, Lucy Caroline, and then Francis was born in 1936, but he didn't have any children after that. Okay. Well, very good. Died in the 90s. Died in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And what, what about his writing, besides the themes that we've been talking about, his, his Catholicism, his um, Ernest Hemingway-esque, although he's before Ernest Hemingway, I guess, so that's, uh, but his traveling around the country and writing from specific places, um, why was he so beloved? Like, what, what's the literary style? What's the... What makes his writing so good? Um, I think the, the Hemingway analogy goes further. He has very tight fiction. Mm -hmm. um, there, he's not very flowery. He's very plot-driven. When he's writing these noir-ish, like, mystery spy sorts of novels, um, they're really thrilling. Mm -hmm. um, they can go very quickly, um, but he's very literary at the same time. Um, the, the craft is very apparent in what he's able to do with with plot and style. Yeah. What did you write about when you wrote about Green uh, for your thesis? Oh, um, I wrote about the, en the ends of love and the end of the affair, where um, uh, part of the thesis was about um, vice and using the seven deadly sins tradition to explore the end of the affair and Morris's, Morris Bendrix's, um, you know, envy and different specific sins yeah. and then the other half of the novel was looking more at Sarah and how uh, natural love led to a divine love um, using um, Pope Benedict the 16th's God is love uh, as a sort of framework for that. Good. Can you say more about that? What's, how does Pope Benedict the 16th frame human love as a possible path toward divine love? Um, he uh, talks about eros and agape as two different forms of love. Ascending love is eros, um, which uh, moves towards the other. And then agape is descending love, which is giving to the other. Mm. So, um, so I have this long quote. I probably shouldn't read this whole thing. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> Yet eros and agape, ascending and descending love, can never be completely separated. The more the two, in their different aspects, find a proper unity in the one reality of love, the more the true nature of love in general is realized. Even if eros is at first mainly covetous and ascending, a fascination for the great promise of happiness in drawing near to the other, it is less and less concerned with itself, increasingly seeks the happiness of the other, is concerned more and more with the beloved, bestows itself, and wants to be there for the other. The element of agape thus enters into this love, for otherwise Eros is impoverished and even loses its own nature. On the other hand, man cannot live by oblative, descending love alone. He cannot always give. He must also receive. Anyone who wishes to give love must also receive love as a gift. Certainly, as the Lord tells us, one can become a source from which rivers of living water flow. Yet to become such a source, one must constantly drink anew from the original source, which is Jesus Christ, from whose pierced heart flows the love of God. That's very interesting. So if we were to apply this to Sarah and her choice, so she, because here she, does she transcend Eros completely with respect to Bendrix? And then, no, she doesn't. I wouldn't say. But she has to stop. She has to renounce him and say no more receiving this particular eros. Mm -hmm. But is she pointed toward God in a way that is agape for God? Because I feel like, wh where is she receiving love? Um, I, 
I don't think it's helpful to totally separate Eros and Agape in our understanding of loves within human relationships. Yeah. And love from God is all agape. It's like pure gift to us. Hmm. Um, so, right? I don't know. I'm just going <laughs> off the quote you gave me. So like I was trying to understand um, because in the quote, he's saying uh, there is a, an ascent that is focused on happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other gives you happiness and you're wanting that happiness from them. But then eventually it, agape, that is wanting the happiness of the other, wanting to render what's due to the other in a, in a certain way, mm-hmm. takes over. And I would see that as true, both as necessary in a relationship with God as well. Yeah. Seeking to delight in God where you are actually made happy by God. Uh, and the beatific vision, as Thomas talks about, is is this extreme experience of happiness from God, mm-hmm. but um, also agape toward God, charity toward God, friendship with God is um, requires a sort of care for God as well, right? And True. I'm just seeing in uh, Graham's portrayal of these things, none of the eros of love of God and all of agape, where it's a, like a sacrifice to God, not a Mm-hmm. receiving anything from god but there there's these moments for sarah of deep peace mm. um where it you know there's she's basically writes a love letter to god that is discovered and it's like this big plot point oh yeah um yeah. but i think in the same way that her sort of um you know going after bendrix as a lover and then learning to truly love him and then being willing to sacrifice for him um with God, it starts as a sort of like, fine, I hate you, but I made this promise, so I'll do it. And then the more that she invests in her relationship with God, the, uh, the more sort of realization of um, the, the peace that comes with living in tune with what he demands um, is sort of made apparent, where the beginning she talks a lot about the desert, and it's like, you know, desert fathers, like yeah, uh, taking away of consolation, the the giving up of things. Um, Dark night, yeah. right? And then um, uh, there are other points in the book where she's like, "Oh, I, I'm never alone. Um, yeah. Like, if I'm in the desert, you're with me." Hmm. Sarah's experience is a true death of self when she gives up Bendrick. She's giving up her human happiness and sort of learning to live as someone who has died with Christ and. Um, can experience a true joy and happiness in the resurrection, but it doesn't feel that way for a while. Yeah. You know, you're really, truly living as a dead person. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you, Heather. This has been marvelous. Thanks for coming on. And uh, again, this is a particular good podcast. Particular good, not particular good. You can't say it every time. (laughs) (laughs) It's a name, not a place. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, if you'd like to hear more about the Unity Affair, uh, Heather will be talking about it on Words with Wine uh, from St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry next Thursday, October 29th, 7.30 p.m. You can sign up for that at www.stbernards.edu.